Good morning. Going live again early on this Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, which in some parts of the United States has oddly superseded the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. I don't know why that is, but in terms of its emphasis in local parishes, it's of greater importance. And it's always odd when you see those kind of local celebrations overshadow holy days of obligation. But today is the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And I was <clears throat> there was something brought to my attention about that in terms of prophecy that I want to go over some point, but I need to um, see if I can get a hold of a guest and do a little research before I do it. So keep an eye on anything you might see from me involving Our Lady of Guadalupe in the not terribly distant future. <clears throat> but good morning to everybody in the chat, including uh, a special good morning to Carl in Adelaide, Australia, <laughs> who is able to catch us for once for live for the first time. I'm uh, going to cover some happenings in Australia here later in the week. I just finished a video on it. So we will be, so keep an eye on that. And when it comes out, please share that with your Australian brethren in the faith. Okay. Is the stream supposed to start automatically? It always starts for me anyway after Anthony's been talking for a minute or so. No, I hit a button that's, that launches the stream. I don't know why it starts for you late, but I hit a button to launch the stream. It tells me that we're live, and I even wait to start talking until I get the prompt that we're live. So it's a, probably a disconnect between our between the service I use and YouTube. And the problem is I use the best service, so it is what it is. Anyway, so today we're going to talk about the um, conference that... Dr. Edward Mazza held at, um, this past weekend, and Archbishop Vigano spoke there. And at that conference, there were different people who came from the question of the validity of Francis as Pope from different angles. Um, you're from, Dr. Mazza's hypothesis of the Munis and Ministerium is probably the most widely known version of this. And Vigano has a different kind of take. His take is what we'll call the defect of intent, meaning that he, he goes after Francis is not being legitimate on the very basis that when he swore to be to do all the things that a pope's supposed to do, he did had absolutely no intention of doing those things. That he accepted the job as he has he himself admitted there were people who put him on the throne of Peter. He has said that publicly, and he's running their program, which obviously contradicts the faith. And his whole point, Vigano's whole point in all this, is one that his hypothesis is that nullifies, of course, Francis. But the other thing. And this is clearly a response to some, you may have noticed that there are certain outlets and certain talking heads who are just completely unwilling to even entertain people talking about this. Uh, I, for instance, don't particularly hold to Dr. Mazza as a position. I don't have anything against Dr. Mazza or anything. I just, I'm not convinced, but I think Vigano's argument might be better. And I think that the question of can someone who is not a Catholic be the Pope of the Catholic Church? Because again, we're talking about heresy and what happens when you're a formal heretic. A formal heretic ceases to be a part of the body of Christ. These are better questions that I wish we could have frank and free conversations about, but we can't. And so he's, Vino is really making the case for having the conversation. He's laying it out there for why the conversation needs to happen. And part of this is in response to something Bishop Athanasius Schneider said. I had a live stream planned like a week and a half ago about a debate between Schneider and Vigano that was an informal debate. They never sat on a stage together or directed letters directly to each other, published in the public realm. 
but it was Vigano would say something, somebody would ask Bishop Schneider about it, he would respond in the negative and give his case. Well, this is a general response to the core element of Bishop Schneider's assertion that part of the reason that Francis is legitimate is because of the universal assent of the faithful. And Vigano's claim here, his response to that is, well, that Francis never intended to actually do the job of being the Pope. And that there, that it doesn't matter if people assent to it because everybody was deceived, essentially. That's what, that's his point here. The Archbishop spoke in person. He spoke pre he, he gave an online talk. And the reason I'm going to give you the trans, the transcript of this is if anybody who's heard the Archbishop speak knows that at, at times he can be difficult to understand. It's, um, English is not his first language. And so I, he, but the, he published the transcript of this on his website. Um, I do have to redact bits of it because there are just things he says I cannot put on this platform. I will give you the, the, you know, ha, you know, the follow the rules summary of what he said and um, to have to switch some terms up. Plus there were typos in it. English not being his first language, this being a translated document. Um, so I did have to fix a few of those. And I then you'll notice I put them into uh, my personal Word, or not, or not Word, but a Google Drive document because I can actually you know, magnify the image to 200%. So you can actually see the text as it goes by, which I can't normally do on most websites. Um, Pat Mascherelli says late notice also. Well, I went live a bit later than nor early, like a minute or two early because I was just impatient. So let's get to this talk here. They say to the seers, see not and to the prophets, do not give us true prophecies, speak pleasing things to us, prophecy illusions for us. See the prophet Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 10. The premise of Vigano's argument. This online conference organized by Professor Edmund Maza has as its theme a topic that is only recently becoming publicly discussed after more than 10 years of horrors worse than those we have witnessed in the last 60 years, but perfectly consistent with the philosophical and theological foundations laid for the present crisis by the Second Vatican Council. Is the Pope Catholic? A question like this in other times would have sounded almost like blasphemy, so deeply rooted was the respect and love of the faithful for the Roman pontiff considered to be like the sweet Christ on earth. Who in the time of Pius XII would have dared to question his moral and magisterial authority? And on the other hand, why would the faithful have had any need to express dissent against a pope since each pope's voice was an expression of in uninterrupted continuity with his predecessors and with the divine master? Listening to Jorge Mario Bergoglio speak today and comparing his words with those of Pastor Angelicus, Pius XII, makes us understand the abyss that separates a true pope from his grotesque parody, the abyss that divides the vicar of Christ from the bee of the pope. The hierarchic authority of all the popes from St. Peter to Pius XII, intimately bound to the divine authority of Christ, the eternal high priest, has been twisted into arrogant authoritarianism and tyranny. The healthy sense of belonging to holy orders of clerics and prelates has been corrupted into clericalism. The fixed immutability of revealed truth, founded on the perfect immutability of God, and even that of truth naturally knowable through reason has yielded to permanent revolution and chaos. Permanent aggiornamento is the word that they use to the provisionality of speak pleasing things to us and to the arbitrariness of debatable prophecy illusions for us. So then he goes on to list things that we can't really talk about in this platform. Um, he links this state of the church to the reality of the 2020 situation when the sacraments were taken from us and the imposed solution by our secular authorities to the problem that 
they created themselves that he, he goes into a long details about that. Can't really talk about that here. So we're going to continue. There are people who still refuse to recognize the causal relationship between the administration of the stuff by the elite. So also in the ecclesial sphere in the face of the devastation caused by the conciliar revolution and the so-called liturgical reform, there are still those who do not want to admit the causal relationship between the, the less evil action of those experts and consultants who are notoriously modernist well before Vatican II, and as such rightly condemned by the Holy Office or regarded with suspicion by the bishops, who use nothing less than an ecumenical council as a prestigious stage on which to perform the false and deceitful piece of dialogue with the world, ecumenism, democratization, and parliamentization of the church, all with the endorsement of the popes of the council. We'll pause here. It's one of the hardest, most bitterest truths for people to accept. Many of the names that we now associate with like orthodoxy and the church in the 1980s and 1990s were all on the holy office list of suspected heretics before the council. They were. They were all they all bragged about it being like the French Revolution in the church. They were all there. It's one of the hardest truths for people to accept, but it's all well documented out there. And that's what he's referencing here. That assembly was rightly defined by its own architects as the 1789 of the church. That's the French Revolution. John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, John Paul the 1st, John Paul the 2nd, and Benedict the 16th did not fail to emphasize how the revolutionary and stonecutter principles of liberty, egality, and fraternity could in some way be shared and made their own by Catholicism, starting from the acceptance, indeed the convinced promotion of the secularity of the state and the substantial cancellation of the divine and universal kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pause again. This is the key he's making here. Everything we see in the church today is being manifest in an obvious way as a rejection of the social reign of Christ the King, which had been the standard teaching of the church until Vatican II and was the subject of much of the debate between Marcel Lefebvre and Cardinal Ratzinger in the 1980s that led ultimately to Archbishop Lefebvre believing there was that he, he had to do the consecrations that got him into a lot of trouble in the late 1980s that led to the to the state where the SSPX are today. Let's continue. If you have the patience to follow me in my examination, you will see that the social kingship of Christ is the stumbling stone against which all accomplices of the evil of the evil schemes of our rulers crash indiscriminately. The causal relationship. Is Bergoglio Catholic is addressed from many different angles according to different criteria stemming from various cultural heritages. The traditional scholastic point of view, the moderate and conciliar, or we could say the Montinian point of view, and the one that wavers, so to speak, between the two shores, recognizing Bergoglio as Pope, although being de facto canonically independent from him. But we must recognize that today it is possible to share along with many priests and laity, a feeling of serious unease and grave scandal due to the cumbersome presence of the Argentine Jesuit. Today, we are able to ask ourselves whether Bergoglio is Catholic, and it is already a good starting point because his heterogeneity to the papacy is now evident and perceived by both the simple faithful as well by a large part of the clergy and even by certain fringes of the media. Again, we pause here. Again, he's asking the question, he's, he's laying this out, making his case, and also encouraging people to at least have the discussion, which... There are people in the traditional world who don't want you to have the discussion. He's trying to foster the discussion because, as he's pointing out, people are already wrestling with this. And there needs to be the free and open discussion in our own circles about this so we can come to conclusions. And he lays out what his position is here. 
The hierarchy limits itself to demonstrating either cowardice or complicity with him. The few discordant voices do not dare to draw the necessary conclusions in the face of the heresies and nonsense of the tenant of Santa Marta. Because they disagree with him, but not with Vatican II, nor are they willing to recognize that it was precisely from that council that the revolutionary process arose, which permitted a person like Jorge Mario to enter the Society of Jesus, be ordained, become a bishop, be created cardinal, and finally to enter a conclave and come out of it as quote-unquote pope. For them, it is permissible to criticize Bergoglio, but only on the condition that one never criticizes the conciliar idol, the untouchable fetish of the Montinians who today compare to the horrors of the Argentine Jesuits seem to be champions of Catholic orthodoxy. And this is where he's poking at the moderates who before the council would have been cons not considered moderate at all, but would have been considered right up there with Bergoglio. And here we come to the great contradiction that unites the proponents of Vatican II with its historical opponents, the Society of St. Pius X in Primus, in wanting to proceed with an evaluation of objectively extraordinary facts using ordinary norms of evaluation. As I have often said, it seems to me that some commentators are more concerned about the doctrine of the papacy than with the salvation of souls, so that they find themselves preferring to be governed by a heretical and apostate pope, rather than recognizing that a heretic or an apostate cannot be at the head of the church, to which, as such, he does not belong. Thus, we have all sorts of hair-splitting about the distinctions between formal and material heresy, none of which do the least thing to impede Bergoglio's destructive action. The objective that accusing the reigning pontiff of heresy or apostasy could cause division and scandal is belied by the evidence of the division and scandal that is already widely present in the ecclesial body, precisely because of Bergoglio's heresy and apostasy which is, so to speak, the tip of the iceberg of a much worse and more widespread crisis of the hierarchy and of the clergy that began 60 years ago and has now almost reached its peak. What he's speaking to here is this is that the situation in the church is not caused by Francis. It is He is just the logical outcome of forces in the church, both moderate and Bergolian, we'll call them, having had their way for 60 years caused not by the council, but because they used the council to do what they wanted by issuing ambiguous documents that they would then be implementing themselves, knowing how they would implement them and how they'd be able to use the force of their bully pulpit, essentially, to push the moderate bishops who were not after the council, not necessarily wanting to go along with things, to go along with things. That's how you got changes to who could be altar servers. That's how you got communion in the hand. That's how you got Suddenly, you know, songs by Hillsong United at Mass and all sorts of other things that happened in the decades after the council was that way. That's why you don't hear Latin in your normal Masses anymore, even though the document on the liturgy from Vatican II explicitly called for Latin to be preserved and given pride of place at the Novus Ordo, which you almost never hear it anymore. And I know people probably in the comments or in the chat later will say, well, my parish does, my parish does. That's fine. You know, results may vary, but again, things are moving in one direction and it's not in a good direction. Now, he, he then goes on to speak more about things we can't talk about on this platform, really. He alleges the that financial transactions between, um, we'll call them our betters in America and elsewhere, and the Vatican are ample evidence to show that the conclave was manipulated, that it was bought and paid for, that this was part of a bigger program we see unfolding in the secular realm. You see conflicts, international meetings that are being held to implement rules over peoples. Francis was supposed to go to one of these, but wasn't able to just this like past week, but they held it anyway. Now, the next section, though, is a response to and a rebuttal of Bishop Athanasius Schneider's stance that Francis is Pope because of universal assent. Here he goes into St. Robert Bellarmine and the concept of 
the universal assent of the faithful, which some people really disagree with anyway. And I'll just tell you my view is that universal assent does not mean 100% of the faithful because you cannot get 100% of people to agree on anything, especially the more people you have involved. And there are like 1.4 billion Catholics, at least on paper in the world. You're not going to get 100% of everybody to agree on anything. But universalists would be here would be like a very clear and over obvious majority and which do accept Francis as the head of the church, at least the earthly head. Continuing with Vigano's letter. Actually, here, let me pause here and check the, and check the live chat just because I do want to see what is their universal assent is, again, where the, where the vast majority of the faithful have, have accepted him. You can't get 100% of people to agree on everything. Um, Whip says that Father Kramer's interpretation of John's apocalypse um, it, it basically says that there's going to be a Pope who fixes all of this and then doesn't last long. That's prob that, that's one definite interpretation. Tradition's Catholic was JP2 under suspicion prior to Vatican II. This is another one of those unpopular things. The man who would become John Paul II, whose name I cannot pronounce properly, and so I'm just going to just call him JP2, he, when he was a, believe, a Cardinal Archbishop, he wrote a doctoral dissertation for the Angelorum, Angel, the, the, the big seminary, the big theology school in the Vatican, the, the official, the gold standard one. And it was rejected by, by Garrigou Lagrange, one of the great minds of the 20th century, on suspicion of modernism, John Paul II. That is a historic fact. Think what you like about John Paul II. I'm never going to counter signal you on having love for him. I'm just pointing out to you a historical fact. That's why these things are much more complicated than ever. Even the trads and conservatives are infighting now. I mean, this has been the case for forever. <laughs> um, Mark Rizzio says, regarding large objects and man's inability to see them, Chesterton, the apostle of common sense, wrote, man can always be blind to a thing so long as it's big enough from the story of the vow. That's pretty much true. I mean, this is a problem, right? And then XM reminds us of the CC meeting in under John Paul II that no one likes to talk about. That was Pacamama 1.0 for people. So this is a much harder thing for people to deal with. So we're going to go back to the to the letter now, though. When St. Robert Bellarmine hypothesized as an academic study the question of whether a Roman pontiff could fall into heresy, he imagined a pope who, while convinced that he could continue to hold the Catholic faith, adhered materially or formally to one particular heresy, in a general context in which the social and ecclesial body remained Catholic, Bellarmine could never have imagined that an emissary of the stonecutters could go so far as to be made Pope with the purpose of demolishing the church from within, usurping and abusing the very power of the papacy itself against the papacy. Nor could he imagine that a hypothetical Pope would surpass mere heresy and embrace all-out apostasy. No doctor of the church has ever contemplated the possibility of an apostate Pope or of a conclave falsified and manipulated by a powers avowedly hostile to Christ, because such an enormity could only happen in a unique and extraordinary context, such as that of the final persecution foretold by the prophet Daniel and described by St. Paul. Our Lord's admonition, and you shall see the abomination of desolation, is to be understood as such precisely because it's absolute uniqueness and for the fact that everyone will see fulfilled, some with horror, some with satanic satisfaction, the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. Let the one who reads understand. See Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Catholics today are scandalized by the fearful silence of cardinals and bishops for the same reason that citizens are shocked by complicity of our leaders in the betrayal of the social contract. They have come to understand that it is everything that is hostage to the enemy. 
and that it is useless to hope to obtain justice and truth from those who are in support of everything we see going on, whether in the civil or ecclesiastical sphere. The subversion operation is so efficient and organized that it is unequivocally shows the work of the of the diabolical that goes far beyond the alleged cunning of, and then we remove some names here because we can't say them here. This is why the Bergoglio problem cannot be solved by ordinary means. No society can survive the total corruption of the authority that governs it, and the church is no different. When her members, and especially her pastors, refuse to recognize the root causes of this doctrinal, moral, and spiritual corruption, and limit themselves to deploring the excesses of this or that statement made by Bergoglio without understanding that we are, that we are dealing with the, the unjust, deceitful man, see Psalm 42, unjust because of the purposes he has, deceitful because of the means he uses to attain those unjust ends. To speak a formal heresy in Bergoglio's case is like merely pointing out the evil deeds of those in the secular realm as being merely evil. We are as far beyond heresy as we are beyond the normal evils of which the secular authority can be held accountable with the aggravating circumstances that the culprit knows, or rather hopes, that he can save himself from condemnation because his main accusers consider him to be the supreme pontiff, and as such exempt from any human tribunal. The first C is judged by no one. This is the ground for which they rest everything. It was precisely on this principle that those who had him uh, made Pope relied, but they forgot a small detail. The intention to harm the church by acting on behalf of an enemy power is not compatible with the acceptance of the papacy, and there is therefore a defect of consent given by the will of the one made Pope, confirmed by his words and deeds over the last 10 years, namely, namely intending to act in fraudum legis, circumventing canon law and concealing his intentions from the very first appearance on the Logia of the Vatican. I repeat, we are not dealing with a situation where a pope adheres to one specific heresy, which, moreover, Bergoglio has done repeatedly. No, the situation is rather that a man was sent into the conclave with orders to revolutionize the church from the top while sitting on the chair of Peter. And again, he did not assume the papacy unreservedly and only later allow himself to be persuaded by bad counselors to act in a questionable way. No, Instead, his premeditation is evident, confirmed both by the correspondence of his actions with the orders that had already been given by the St. Gallen group under the pontificate of Benedict XVI, whether by, the, whether by those members of that group or in the Pact of the Catacombs. It matters little. And by the repeated meetings of the Argentine Jesuit with exponents of the drivers of the program of the secular rulers before the eyes of all. Meaning that, according to Vigano, Francis had no intention of acting like Pope to doing the basic job of being the Pope. He had no intention of that forever. And that by itself nullifies his claim. Is that true or not? That will be something that the hierarchy will have to pick up at some point in the future. The point Vigano is making by having, by saying these things is to try to get people to have the conversation, which we are per not permitted to have according to some of those who have very large platforms and also by those, by some bishops who don't want you to even have the conversation because it's critical conversation to be having in our time. It is plausible that Benedict XVI's declaration of 11th February, 2013, due to the critical issues masterfully highlighted by professor Enrico Maria Radea led to a situation of canonical irregularity that preceded the conclave of March, 2013, such as to invalidate it and also thus render null and void the conclave of the successor of Benedict XVI, regardless of whether the one chosen was Bergoglio or a new Pius X. 
But even if Benedict XVI legitimately abdicated, although aware of the risk of making the choosing of the Argentine Jesuit materially possible, it is a malicious intent to grossly misuse the authority and power of the papacy, assuming it by means of deception, which makes the vitium consensus real and makes Bergoglio a usurper of the throne of Peter. The consensus and support for the Argentine Jesuit comes significantly from the ultra-progressive and pro-heretical wing that sponsored his elevation. Again, I missed a typo there. That's not me. <laughs> All notorious allies of the ape of the church and closely linked to the James Martin crowd in the secular world. If there are those who stubbornly insist on examining the finger of those who denounce this hostile takeover of the church and not at the moon of Bergoglio's evident co uh, coherence with it, we cannot behave as if we were resolving a question of a point of canon law. No, the Lord is being outraged, the church is being humiliated, and souls are being lost because a usurper remains on the throne, one whose acts of governance and magisterium can be judged in light of the words of our Lord. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inside they are ravenous wolves. By their fruits you will know them. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from brambles? Thus every good tree produces good fruit, and every bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Any tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. By their fruits, therefore, you will be able to discern them. See Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. You heard it correctly. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce good fruit, which means that Bergoglio's uninterrupted behavior before, during, and after his elevation alone counts as proof of his inherent iniquity. Can we be morally certain, then, that the tenant of Santa Marta is a false prophet? My answer is yes. Are we therefore authorized and conscious to revoke our obedience to someone who, who presenting himself as Pope is in reality acting like the biblical wild boar in the Lord's vineyard, or like the hierarchy, or like the hireling who is not the shepherd, whose own sheep are not, and who has no care for the sheep? The answer is yes. What we cannot do because we do not have the authority is to officially declare that Jorge Mario Bergoglio is not Pope. The terrible impasse in which we find ourselves makes any human solution impossible. Our task must not be to engage in the abstract speculations of canonists, but to resist with all our strength and with the help of God's grace, the explicitly destructive action of the Jesuit Argentine, refusing with courage and determination any collaboration, even indirect collaboration with him and his accomplices. Pause here. So what he is saying here is we don't have the authority to say he's not actually the Pope, but we can make the case. We can't do it definitively, though, because that is ultimately a job for a future pontiff, or a future ecumenical council. There's, a few, there's even theories about who can do that, but I don't think anybody declares that or denies that if, say, Pius XII or Thirteenth were to come along at the next conclave or three conclaves from now, that he, if he decided to declare Francis to be an anti-pope, that they couldn't, nobody denies that he would have that authority. Catherine says uh, the Lucifer's 100 years are up. That's not necessarily true, actually. Uh, people do, people assume that those, those hundred years started in, uh, at Fatima, but there are some who, who think that they started in, uh, with Sister Lucia's vision in 1931, which would explain why things are going just so weird right now in the world. Um, too many people are denying the power of Christ promised as Peter. There, well, no one here is doing that. There's... What we're denying, what we're not denying is that uh, Satan is attempting to do what he promised our Lord he, he would try to do when at the vision of uh, Leo the 13th in 1884, I think it was, where he said he would, if given a century, he would try to destroy the church. Uh, 
Vigodos trying to warm Novus Ordo R and R normies into set of a contism step by step so they don't freak out. Well, that would be interesting because Vigodos not a set of a contest because he doesn't believe that Benedict was an anti pope or that John Paul II was an anti pope. He has never declared them as such, which would which is what would be required for him to be a set of a contest. So uh, let's not conflate set of a contism with some of the other hypotheses out there. All right, let's 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 get back to this letter because now we're getting to the what I think is the crux of the whole thing the rejection of the kingship of the man god the rejection of the kingship of Christ the king the evil of this world is intrinsically connected with the refusal to recognize that both in the state and the church the vicarious authority of those who govern emanates directly from the hypostatic union that is from the union of divinity and humanity in our lord jesus christ king and high priest the hatred of the wicked against Christ the King was born in eternity when the Holy Trinity put Lucifer to the test and he understood that he would have to worship and obey the man God. That he would have to recognize him as King and Lord despite the humiliation of having assumed a human body and the infamy of the affliction of the cross. It was then that Lucifer shouted his non-servium. The cry of rebellion that earned the eternal condemnation of part of the angelic spirits is found in the torn garments of Caiaphas. In the maneuvers of the chief priests and the scribes of the people to send the promised Messiah to the cross, guilty of not having lent himself to the ambition of power of the Sanhedrin. We find it in the theological delirium of redacted theology name, key to the present conflict in our Lord's homeland, which since the Congress of that place in 1897 has positioned itself as a sort of Vatican II of our so-called elder brothers in the faith, replacing the figure of a personal Messiah with the advent of the redacted state that's in the headlines right now. That council sanctioned the divinization of the state and its independence from the divine will which is the very premise of tyranny the members of the modernist sanhedrin at vatican ii acted no differently when in the name of the secularity of the state and religious freedom they trampled on the doctrine of the social kingship of christ that had just been proclaimed by pius XI. non-servium had already echoed in the germany of the heresiarch luther and in the England of Henry VIII with the rejection of the authority of the Vicar of Christ. And it again resounded arrogantly in the revolutionary France with the universal declaration of the rights of man, and again with liberalism, which takes away from the lordship of God not only the dominion of nations, but also the primacy of the moral law over the rules of economics. And he goes on to list a whole bunch of non-serviums that would be, get my live stream pulled so we can just skip past it. Here's the important part. Until we recognize the inevitability of the victory of the man-god as king and lord of the universe, in the victory of the virgin mother of God as queen and lady by grace, until all nations and peoples bend the knee before the one savior and redeemer of the human race, as long as society and the church continue to be held by the enemies of Christ the king and his most august mother, we will not be able to hope for the end of this most painful trial, because we will not have made the necessary choices of sides that the Lord expects of us in order to make us sharers in his total and definitive triumph over Satan. Let us not deceive ourselves. Those who stubbornly insist on reading the present situation with merely human eyes expose not only themselves, but also the whole of humanity to the continuation and aggravation of the situation. For our battle is not against creatures made of flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of this world of darkness, against the spirits of evil who dwell in the heavenly regions. See Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. In conclusion, let the once Christian nations return to the faith of their fathers. Let dissidents embrace Catholic unity. May peoples who are immersed in the darkness of superstition and idolatry be converted to the living and true God. Let the people who were once the chosen people recognize the true Messiah, distancing themselves from their heresy. Let individuals, especially those who are established in authority, shake themselves from their slumber and recognize with confidence that there is no power except from God, because this and only this is the premise for the harmony of peoples, for justice, for peace. Let faithful Catholics realize that it is no longer possible to passively 
defer choosing which side we are on. Clinging to the illusion that the current crisis fits with any precedent. Remaining submissive to the cloak of authority, worn by one who speaks only pleasing things, but does not speak with the authority of Jesus Christ. And if the shepherds are absent from this general awakening of consciences, let them remember the Lord's terrible words. If these are silent, the stones will cry out. Signed, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano. And this letter is available on his website. And I will have it linked to it in my show notes at returntotradition.org so you can read the full unredacted one. Um, I was originally hoping to bring you his uh, letter for the um, Feast of the Immaculate Conception, but for whatever reason, the link on that website does not work. So if anybody who can get a hold of Vigano can get him to fix that, that would be greatly appreciated. Let's see, Vigano never says Pope Francis, but Bergoglio. That's He's European. That's a very normal thing in Europe. In Europe, I mean, Malachi Martin being Irish referred to uh, John Paul II as, as Pope Otia often in his writings. So, I mean, it's it's a com it's much more common in Europe, not in North America. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm curious what you all have to think about this. Romulus reminds us that Nas Servium is a, the battle cry of refusing to obey Almighty God. So, yeah, that's it's it com it comes from Lucifer. Yes, that's what non Servium means. It, we have to clarify that because it's weird to think that as Catholics, Latin is such a disused language in our, amongst ourselves now that uh, that even the basic, most basic Catholic phrases are ones that we don't understand. All right, folks, if there are no further questions, I will be uh, making sure to get this on my site as soon as I can. So I'm going to end the stream here. Thank you, folks, for tuning in today. Share this if you can online. Um, and uh, as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria. <laughs>